This week, a lecture by Edward Ball, who through his own research found that his family had owned slaves for over 300 years. He discusses his books, Slaves in the Family, and Life of a Klansman, a Family History in White Supremacy. In 1925, the Ku Klux Klan could claim five million members, white and Christian. Now, it's likely for publicity reasons that this number was exaggerated. Let's assume that actual Klan membership stood near four million. The descendants of four million Klansmen living in 1925, if you count forward 100 years to their grandchildren and great-grandchildren in the year 2025, add up to about 135 million living white Americans. 135 million form 50% of the white population of the United States. More in a moment. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Uh, Mayor, do you want to um, welcome once again uh, Edward Ball to our classroom? Indeed, uh, Professor Taylor. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm so grateful and honored that Edward Ball has so generously given of this time to return to our class today. You all finished reading Slaves in the Family, which as you know, is the reason that we're building the museum. And it's such a, a wonderful example of the power of a book and the power of a great book. Without uh, Edward Ball having written the book uh, and me having known about the book and read the book, um, the International African American Museum would not be under construction. And it's well under construction. It will uh, be finished uh, June or July of next year. And, um, and that's all because of, of Edward Ball's powerful work and, and wonderful work. And I'm sure that all of you have questions and comments about the book. So I'll I hope you'll take advantage of this wonderful opportunity to discuss them with Edward uh, this afternoon. So questions or comments? Well, hello, uh, Mayor Riley. Well, thank you for inviting me to to come visit with you all. Um, I'm happy to do a Q&A if you like. And um, I thought it would also be appropriate just to start with by reading a couple of pages from this book that you all have had in your hands. And um, the, the, pa the passage that I think is, is uh, resonant uh, more than many others in the book is one about the last day of enslavement on one of the plantations in uh, in Berkeley County. And 
uh, I thought that I'd read a couple of pages describing that day because <clears throat> it's the it's uh, the day when the back of slavery was broken and and uh, people breathed the air of liberation in many ways for the first time. Uh, there was a place called Limerick Plantation, as you probably remember from this book. It's 25 miles north of Charleston on the, on the east branch of Cook River. The last day of slavery came at Limerick on February 26, 1865. William Ball, that was the master of the place, sat in the dining room, a Bible in front of him, reading aloud to his family and a few of his people. There were several African-Americans in this dining room on that day, the morning of Sunday, February 26. The local clergyman had made himself scarce during the fight, so William read church services for gatherings at home. It was Sunday, and everyone in the room, black and white, knew the end was upon them. Before long, a dispatch of greasy Yankees, as William's son Isaac called them, would arrive in the alley of oaks outside the door. The prayer group numbered about 10, seated around the table were William's mother Eliza, his sister Jane, and his wife Mary. Rounding out the table was William and Mary's four-month-old daughter Eliza. Behind the whites in the corner and along the plastered walls stood an elderly black woman, Mom Hetty, the plantation's black matriarch who lived nearest the family and ranked first among Limerick's house slaves. Had he had brought up William's four sons by his first wife and raised her own children on the side. Next to Hetty, probably, stood Robert, the butler, as well as the Ball brothers' companion and valet during their wartime service. The Bible reading was from the Book of Lamentations, it was a mournful passage about the miserable fate of Jerusalem, condemned by God for its sins. She that was great among the nations and princess among the provinces, read William, she weepeth sore in the night, and her tears are on her cheeks. For the Lord hath afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. According to Mary Ball, the white people in the room thought the Bible passage fit their predicament. Skipping down. <clears throat> a week after the victors arrived, this was a spur, as many of us know, from Sherman's army, they sent raiding parties to the plantations. As William was reading from the Bible, the cavalryman and his company suddenly rode up to the mansion. A man in a blue uniform dismounted, threw open the door, and demanded to talk to the black village. The crowd came from behind the from the cabins behind the house. Among the group was Henry, a nine-year-old boy with a broad face and light skin. Years later, Henry would recall this day in a letter to Mary Ball. A young woman named Sylvia, one of the plantation seamstresses, also came down. The gardener, Daddy Ben, who kept the yard and flower beds. And the rest came down, and the Yankee told the crowd they were free. The ball women at this time evidently worried about rape. Throughout the war, the Confederate press had stoked to morale with charges that if the Southerners gave in, Yankees would ravish the South. 
and with hints that freed black men would do the same. Mary Ball wrote that when the celebration began outside, she and her sister-in-law, Jane Shulbred, ran upstairs, each put on two heavy dresses, loading themselves down in a way that would frustrate sexual attack. William Ball had buried the family silver in a swamp near the house. Grabbing the last pieces that were still in the house, Mary and Jane put them in cloth bags and stowed the loot next to their bodies under layers of petticoats. The soldiers, the Yankee soldiers arrived and caroused through the house. Skipping down. <clears throat> the commander of the Black Company, the Yankee Black Company, a Colonel James Beecher came from a family of anti-slavery activists in the North. His half-brother, the Reverend Henry Ward Beecher, was an abolitionist and pastor at Plymouth Congregational Church in Brooklyn. His half-sister was Harriet Beecher Stowe, author of Uncle Tom's Cabin. Let's see. A similar scene was repeated on all the ball places as each was raided by Yankee troops. The balls feared the worst, but in the end, the soldiers and freed people just snatched a few hams. The single exception came at Buck Hall Plantation, formerly home to William Ball's cousin, Anne Days. The Buck Hall Mansion, work buildings, and crop were burned to the ground by federal soldiers and freed Ball slaves. Despite the slaughter of the war, no one, not even on Buck Hall, was hurt. And so it was. It's possible to look into the telescope into the past and see how uh, slavery came to an end on specific uh, places and at specific times. And it's a fascinating story. And I told you stories just now from a diary kept by a woman who lived on this plantation. But elsewhere, I spent a lot of time with a family named Lucas in Charleston, whose predecessors, great-grandparents, had been on that very place, Limerick Plantation, on that very day, and who handed down oral tradition and stories describing that very day uh, in terms that were nearly identical to the ones that were written down by uh, women who were in the, that dining room when the, the Yankees showed up on the lawn. So there is black oral tradition and white written tradition, and they came together to, uh, to make uh, a, a fuller portrait. Anyway, with that, have you all got anything on your mind from this book that um, that you want to raise with me? Yes, sir. I, I have a couple questions, but I'll keep it the one for now. Um, I was just wondering if you could touch on um, the relationship of like uh, previously enslaved African Americans with like their previous owners, and just like how that kind of dynamic was. Because like I understand like indentured slaves and all that kind of thing, or indentured servants rather. Um, but I was wondering if, like, just in your experience, if you knew any more on that. Yeah. I think it was as various as people's and families themselves. Their, my best 
estimate is that one half of emancipated African-Americans left the plantations where they had been enslaved and staked out new lives elsewhere uh, in North Carolina or in Georgia or in Eastern Tennessee. They, they fled or they went to Spartanburg or somewhere because they wanted to get as far as they could from that home place. And one half remained on the plantations and became uh, sharecrop farmers when the enslavement, the plantations were, many of them became sharecrop uh, operations. And my my experience talking to dozens of African-American families who have oral tradition about uh, the reconstruction period is that their experiences varied. Uh, Some wanted to remain, if you like, uh, in proximity to their former enslavers uh, because those white families were the principal source of of income and resources and not 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 least a place to live and and the community uh, remained of African Americans remained largely intact. Um, and so they staked out relationships with the former enslavers that were <clears throat> in some ways had points of resemblance to the ones that they had just broken um, by uh, freeing themselves. And on the other hand, there were those families who uh, detested um, what they had been forced to experience and wanted to get as far away from Mr. and Mrs. Ball as they could. So I think it varied, uh, Taylor. Thank you. Sure. Hello, Mr. Ball. I wanted to thank you for coming out once again. I appreciate, you know, your time. Um, Well, actually, I had the pleasure to... um, present my project to my fellow peers last week and this research consisted of whoops we lost you melanie oh sorry i don't know why i I muted (laughs) anyways so i had the pleasure to share with my fellow peers my um midterm project that we had and I wanted to touch on that, like your research. I wanted to applaud you. Like last time, I applaud you on how deep you went in with your with your your history and the accuracy of the history. Um, I wanted to ask questions about like just research in general. I know it's like a very general, you know, question, but I found it difficult, you know, um, doing this research. And I did, I had, I was assigned five people and I only had one person that I could really find more information on. So how did you go about in depth, you know, all of that research that you, you know, you did throughout the book? How would you explain that process or all of that? So you had five people from what period that you had to research? Um, I believe the census 
that I looked at would be from 1840s up until 1950s because I have yeah. some sources here, like just. Yeah. So I'll just give you that range. It's not that accurate, but that's the. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> I had the advantage in writing this book of um, of uh, three and a half years of full time labor. And I was able to go to archives that hold the papers of um, the plantations that I wrote about, as well as the papers of uh, white families who controlled hundreds of other plantations. So the key uh, was uh, a piece of good fortune being able to identify where an African-American family lived in slavery. Uh, And if you can do that using oral tradition or circumstantial evidence uh, from the year 1870 and 1865, and I can describe exactly what kind of evidence I'm referring to, then you can, with some luck, find the papers of the whites who had uh, enslaved a given family, which then might have uh, anecdotal uh, stories about uh, enslaved individuals. And that's what's, uh, it, it, what is painstaking to accomplish. But around 1870, <clears throat> as you know, um, Melanie, the, the census records show for the first time the use of surnames by African Americans, the first use of surnames by African Americans. And um, using those surnames, let's say you have the name Betty Hampton, uh, um, you could be lucky enough to find in the plantation records from five years earlier lists of enslaved people that include Betty and her children. And using the census records, which has the name Hampton and Betty and her children, you can match these records to the plantation records of slave lists. That was the the crux of what slaves in the family did. Uh, There are other places where you can find the magic key. One of them is uh, in the records of uh, the Freedmen's Bureau, <clears throat> which was the agency established in 1866 to try to help African Americans transition to life freedom. And in the records of the Freedmen's Bureau, there are institutions that um, freed people used, um, like the Freedmen's Bank, in which they uh, document their family history. Uh, as a way of applying for a loan or applying for a a bank account. And these records are also uh, quite good. So um, uh, there's there's a lot more to it, but those are the the two two of the magic keys that lead you back further into the past. Alrighty, thank you. I'll take that into consideration for my final. So thank you. Sure, sure.
<clears throat> Edward, just for a, yeah, a little more context is, so each student was assigned uh, five or so names of workers, uh, African-American workers at the cigar factory from uh, the mid 20th century. Yeah, yeah. So they were given the names and maybe a connection to either a city directory or a census record. Okay. And then they were charged with building a profile based on uh, mostly Ancestry.com research. Yes. And, uh, and, and I think all of us, you know, struggled with it tremendously. Um, you know, some of the, the, you know, when we were able to make the connections, I think there were some, you know, fabulous uh, revelations that, um, you know, that were made. But I think it also just gave us a little window into, um, you know, it was an Edward Ball inspired project, you know, frankly, and it gave us a little window into the work that, um, you know, that you did. Yeah. Uh, you know, so long ago. Right. I see. I understand. Yeah. Well, Ancestry is a, is a marvelous resource. And, uh, and yet, <clears throat> the public records that you're able to retrieve at your fingertips now are sometimes inadequate to constructing family narratives. They are very partial. Uh, they are a first step. Um, and constructing a, a family narrative uh, with some flesh on it does require uh, talking face to face with folks and uh, finding folks that it will have uh, family memories from from a hundred years ago and with their participation and collaboration uh, using those oral traditions to to make a, a flesh and blood family history. Um, if it's okay, I'd like to ask another question. Of course. Um, so uh, through my reading, uh, I kept referencing back to uh, earlier in the story, whenever you mentioned a little bit about Monk's Corner and the plantations in there. Um, well, I'm from Monk's Corner, so I was wondering if, like, you could remember, like, just had anything off the top of your head, like, significant that happened or was, like, out, uh, stood out to you, like, just about Monk's Corner and about the, Monk's Corner? the research you did. Oh, yeah. Well, Monk's Corner was, you know, 150 years ago, uh, a crossroads, and and uh, it was a place where Mr. Monk had a general store uh, at the corner of what is now what 51 and uh, and Tail Race uh, oh, Highway 52 and the Tail Race uh, Canal. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's that's where it was. Yeah, um, but they were talking 250 years ago. <clears throat> uh, a lot of black folks uh, leaving the plantations on the Cooper River to the you know east of Monk's Corner settled uh, along and around what is now 52, uh, and uh, by sweat and tears, you know, were able to acquire tiny homesteads, sometimes, you know, from the former slave owners on, on the west branch of the Cooper. I mean, you know the geography as well as anybody, so you can picture what I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, one of the things 
that is uh, exceptional about this uh, history along the Cooper River is the fact that it survives at all. <clears throat> uh, you know that when the raiding parties from the Union Army came in from Charleston, they went up the Ashley River and burned most of the plantations along the Ashley River. Whereas they went up the Cooper River and they did not burn, they only burned one, which was the one I described in this little reading, Buck Hall. And almost all the others survived. And as a consequence, um, uh, I, I think that the, the, the outcome was actually somewhat more stable on the west, on the uh, Cooper River than it was on the Ashley River after the Civil War. Um, So I don't have a, you know, a hair-raising anecdote that I can toss to you, Taylor. Uh, Yeah, and I'm not inclined to make one up. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, but um, uh, it's... It's interesting that, uh, you know, Monk's Corner was one thing, you know, 150 years ago, and it is now something else. But uh, is is Monk's Corner predominantly African-American or perhaps Um, half and half African-American, half white? Is it the... I'd probably say like probably about 50-50. You have like larger sections of the city now that are uh, predominantly African-American. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and I think that fact dates from you know right after, right after the Civil War when uh, African Americans left the plantations and s- established new lives. And <clears throat> some of the white folks uh, who owned the plantations on the West Branch, bordering uh, Monk's Corner, were not in not eager to sell little parcels of land to African-Americans and some were. And that was, again, a a matter of chance, a matter of, you know, family uh, disposition, how this white family uh, experienced their um, loss of status and how the next white family experienced their loss of status, whether they wanted to... uh, help some of the African-American families that they had enslaved or not. Um, and um, so, yeah, those are just some, some, uh, some thoughts here and there about Monk's Corner. Thank you. Um, yeah, yeah I, I was just, whenever I was reading it, I was reading about all the plantations that didn't get burned. And I was thinking about like, I don't know if you know of Gibby Plantation, yeah, it's a huge one right there in Monk's Corner. And I didn't know if like anything had affected them or just because it's so large. Right. I would assume they, that's like, they would have had some kind of uh, backlash in a sense. Yeah, yeah. I don't know the specifics about kidney plantation. What, uh, um, but um, there were, how many were there? You know, there were 50 plantations, you know, up, up and down the Cooper River and on the, either side of it. Uh, so they were each 
each each one was a community and each one uh, had a different experience. Yes, sir. Well, thank you. I really appreciate it. Sure, sure. Pleasure. Hello, Mr. Ball. Hey, how are you? Pretty good. My good. question is, um, I, when I was reading your book, I noticed you mentioned how a lot of the, um, how a lot of the slaves they're often raped by their um, their masters, and then when they when they were getting impregnated, they um, the the masters they wouldn't put down the birth date of the um, of their of their illegitimate child. They would they would just leave it blank. So was it um was it was it tough sometimes trying to trace trying to trace like the history of the family, especially for those like within um the the black descendants of some of the black descendants of the Ball family? Was it uh, tough like tracing them? Oh sure, yeah, very tough. <clears throat> I I knew that there were perhaps dozens of African American families with whom our white family shared blood because of forced uh, sex on the plantations. Now, we all know that this for white folks is, is a difficult subject and there's a lot of um, denial or unwillingness to sort of look it in the face. But when I started to work on this book, I began to meet African-American family after African-American family who had oral tradition that said, you know, my great-great-grandfather was a man named Ball, and he came from this particular plantation. <clears throat> I wanted to, and and yet, for reasons that you describe, there are few paper trails that you can follow that lead to, you know, the the uh, coupling of of a white enslaver and an enslaved woman, uh, and so there are many African American families who know who their white cousins might be, and and yet there is a difficult um, evidence trail. I knew that I wanted to write about uh, some of the families that had this experience in this oral tradition with their collaboration, participation, and consent. And yet I knew that I could only write about those families if I had um, enough preponderant of persuasive evidence that would um, convince a, a reader that the that these that our family was in fact related. <coughs> so I was able in the case of two families <coughs> to require to com- compile enough circumstantial evidence and <coughs> oral tradition and odd bits of paper evidence that confirmed. And they consisted in such things as this. I mean the, the, the specifics of the researcher are almost so obscure. So there'd be a, a, a plantation master named James Ball, uh, and the record shows that he's unmarried. He's living on a place called uh, Quenby Plantation. He And there's a woman on the place uh, named Harriet, and Harriet has a son, uh, and then J- James Ball, 
the unmarried James Ball sells Quenby Plantation, buys another place, and moves to it. And the only person, according to the paper record, that he that goes with him is Harriet and her son, uh, and they resettle there. And furthermore, James Ball dies, and the record shows that uh, he leaves five hundred dollars to Harriet, and uh, and to no other African American. So things like that, that kind of, which which is circumstantial evidence, but persuasive. In the case of a couple of families, I would find a photograph of James Ball and a, a family in, uh, in, in Berkeley County had a photograph of their great-grandfather who was purported to be the son of James Ball. And I compared these two photographs and there was strong, strong family resemblance. So that's a long answer to your question, but it was very, it's, it's very difficult to excavate um, the details of, of uh, this very painful um, history. But I, I, I think that, that um, it, it uh, in the end, I think it does help uh, both black folks and white folks to come to terms with the, uh, with the real deal and the real the real story of uh, of, uh, of our history by talking about these stories honestly. Thank you, sir. Sure, sure. What was it like? I believe her name was Kate Wilson. What was it like finding out the information about Kate Wilson and her connections to your family? It was, no story. it was deep. Great. Yeah, you remember Kate Wilson. She was, uh, I think, the the matriarch of the Harleston family, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, <clears throat> she was a, a case of like the one I was just describing with James Ball. Her uh, her uh, her enslaver was a man called John Harleston, who was a cousin in the Ball family. And John Halston was not married to a white woman, and Kate Wilson was um, his partner, if you like, on a place called Elwood Plantation up on the uh, east branch of Cooper. I'm sorry, the west branch, I think. And what's extraordinary about these two, Kate Wilson and John Halston, is that they had eight children over a period of 25 years. And so this was a relationship that may, it's, it's not a relationship you can say was consensual, uh, you know, a relationship that Kate Wilson undertook with her, you know, with, uh, with willingness and a relationship characterized by love. It's, it's has to be described in an, in a complicated way, but it was not as the evidence suggests that it was not a relationship that was um, based upon sexual um, assault. If it, if it survived for 25 years and produced eight children and these eight children 
receive money and an education from their uh, deceased white father, and so it's it's a it's a it's an interesting and complicated uh, example of the interracial relationships that evolved during slavery. I think it was deep, Thomas. That was that was the way I, I felt about it. And I explored this relationship, of course, with with the uh, African American Harlson family in 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 a lot of detail. Um. So. Edward, that sounds that that sounds like the subject of another book. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. Uh, Edward, how did the um, how did how did white people feel about that? The black people would would have you know been, would have been subject to oftentimes of coercion or you know uh, demeaning, but but. Right. How, how did white people, how was that handled? Uh-huh. In a white family. Yeah. 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 Well, there, I, I think that it was handled in a variety of ways, but there are two templates, two models that come to mind. One is <clears throat> there is a white couple, the slave-owning couple in the big house, there are 50 African Americans who live in right adjacent to the big house. And the husband in that white couple um, is of a personality that wishes to avail himself of, of sexual pleasure. And uh, and he does so either by force or or threat or uh, uh, some kind of bargaining quid pro quo relationship with women on the slave street. Meanwhile, his wife, the white wife, is probably aware of uh, of her husband's. Uh, <laughs> Nighttime. He's not. He's perhaps. Perhaps he's not doing this all the time. But perhaps he actually establishes a second family uh, on the plantation. And it's. It sounds like this is one template to me. The wife is aware of it, and it's. It's just a. It's just an awful kind of um, poison circulating in the household, in the white household. Not to mention. On the slave street. That's one template. Another template is the young sons. This is probably more common. The young sons of the white uh, landowners uh, often had their first sexual experiences as 16, 17 year old men with enslaved women. That was uh, an ins- that was a kind of institutional aspect of of the slave uh, master relationship that a young white man uh, uh, became sexually apprenticed, you know, or took advantage of um, 
young black women on the plantation for his own sexual experience. As as we know from you know from our own memories and history of of the South, <clears throat> white women were not for generations and generations allowed to be sexually active, and so young white men um, are forbidden from socially and many other ways forbidden from uh, sexual. Um, sexual love with white women and uh, enslaved African-American women are, are often the mothers of children. You, you, we all know the story of Strom Thurmond. Strom Thurmond's experience resembles this template almost exactly. He was, uh, I think an 18 year old uh, kid. Um, And, um, Fathered a child with the um, with the uh, with one of the cooks in in the in the family home, um, and that's the way it worked. And that's the way it worked. And I, th- I think those are the two main templates. Any other questions of, uh, of Edward? You guys want to talk about the hard stuff, man. You want to talk about the hard stuff. You want to talk about the real nitty gritty. <laughs> I have a question. Yes. Yeah. Um, so uh, in your book, I read that a lot of the, sl- the ball slaves did not um, take after the ball name once they were freed. And so, like, it said in the book that for the most part, they were treated pretty well, like they were educated. Um, so I was wondering, why do you think that a lot of slaves didn't take on your family name? Yeah, well, uh, the former people, the people formerly enslaved by the balls were, were not, you know, universally, as you say, treated well and certainly not universally educated. <clears throat> Um, but there, there is this, this, this pattern that a lot of low country uh, African-Americans do not carry the surnames of their former enslavers. In other parts of the South, in Alabama and Mississippi, it's much more common that African-Americans carry the surnames of their former enslavers. And I think that the way it evolved is this. There is oral tradition in the Ball family that goes as follows. The the biggest slave master at the end of the Civil War, his name was William Ball. He owned 12 plantations and enslaved 900 people. Did not actually, uh, he, he actually presented himself to huge meetings of the former Ball slaves and said, do not take my name. Uh, now, perhaps he did this, you know, in a strict way, or perhaps he was more gentle about a request. I just don't know. But his desire was that that um, former Ball slaves do not carry the name Ball. So um, in 95% of the cases, uh, 
former ball slaves do not carry the name ball. There, there are about, there's about one in 20 that did yeah, use the name ball. Uh, I think this, this is actually something that's more common than is generally acknowledged throughout the South. Uh, the conventional understanding is that African-Americans carry the names of their former enslavers, but I don't believe it's, it's, uh, it's widely true because this was a point in the life of a man and a woman when they had this enormous sense of possibility and they could select a name of their own choosing uh, uh, and, and use it publicly and use it legally and um, share it with their children. And so, uh, you know, millions of African-Americans chose names. Uh, in the case of the low country uh, families, you'll see by looking at the lists of, you know, share crop contracts and, and the census records themselves, that people chose surnames that were being used by white folks elsewhere, the Simmonses and the, and the Manigos. And, um, but they did not choose surnames that came from the family of their former enslaver. They might have chosen the name of a Simmons. They might have chosen the name Simmons, a family, a white family that lived, you know, 25 miles away, whom they had some regard for. They might have chosen the name of, <clears throat> of Anson, a white family that they had some regard for. And uh, so that's how it, that's, that's one way that it worked. Thank you. Sure, sure. Good question. We might have time for one more quick question before we need to take a break and then uh, invite the larger public into the class. <clears throat> so a a anyone with a, a final question? You go ahead. Uh, okay. Um, with the African American Museum Genealogy Center, what impact do you think that will happen to the African American family histories before 1865? Yeah. yeah. That's a good question. And I'm optimistic that it will uh, encourage hundreds, of, if not thousands, of people to uh, to investigate their family histories. Uh, I know the woman who is going to run that center, Tony Carrier, and she's a good egg. And she has in her mind, she knows what records need to be retrieved in order to make it possible for African-Americans to investigate their family histories. And uh, so I'm, I think it, I think it might have a beneficial effect because as I said, I, I think I would repeat this perhaps a bit um, heavily to investigate <clears throat> the family, your family history in the most difficult areas has a therapeutic effect. It gives an unusual and un un unexpected uh, strength to learn about the hard parts of one's family history. Uh, and I'm saying that, I'm describing the experience of both African-Americans who, who find time 
and will to do this as well as white folks who uh, who want to look peer into the into the uh, the hard parts of their family narrative. It has a therapeutic effect, and uh, so I'm optimistic that the um, the Family History Center will spread some of that therapy. Well, I am too, Edward, and uh, well, th thank you so much for your generous time uh, this part of the afternoon, and we'll take a break and uh, be back uh, at about 3.30, um, uh, is it, Kelly? Yeah, that's right. We'll uh, yeah, take about a five or six minute break, and um, we'll come back and uh, get started at 3.30. Super. All right. Thank well, you very much, Edward. Sure, my pleasure. Thank I'll you, Edward. Wonderful. Well, good, good afternoon and, and welcome uh, to our class or back to our class. We're delighted to have uh, all of you with us and, uh, and today for a very special occasion, a wonderful distinguished historian who has returned to our class and for which we are very grateful. Before introducing today's guest speaker, Edward Ball, I'd like to take a moment to share some good news about the International African American Museum. After months long nationwide search, I'm delighted to share the news of hiring Dr. Tanya Matthews as the Chief Executive Officer of the International African American Museum. Tanya Matthews is an experienced executive thought leader an educator with proven track record and organizational leadership, strategic planning, diversity, inclusion, program development, and project management. Bringing Tanya on board is an exciting new phase of the museum, a necessary, important step as a full-time professional staff moves closer to taking the full ownership of the museum. We could never have gotten this far but the many contributions of the dedicated, fabulous museum staff. And I thank you so much. I'm honored to welcome author Edward Ball to our class today. Edward has generously offered to spend two class sessions with us this semester. Edward's book, Slaves in the Family, the 1998 National Book Award winner for nonfiction, is the reason why we are building the International African American Museum. For reading this book, open my eyes, my heart, and my mind to a history that I did not previously know, and a history that most in our country still do not know. It inspired me to set out on a 21-year quest to build that would tell the long hidden history, our country's true history, and tell it where that history occurred, Gadsden's Wharf in Charleston. And I must say that during these 21 years, I've been blessed and the museum has been blessed with an extraordinary team of dedicated supporters and workers and benefactors and staff that have brought us this far on our way. 
Edward, writing this book has been a great service to our country and, and, and will for years to come. Thank you very much. This afternoon, Edward will discuss his latest book, Life of a Klansman. In Life of a Klansman, Edward Ball returns to the subject of slaves in the family, the mechanisms of white supremacy in America as understood through the lives of his own ancestors. This time, he tells the story of a warrior of the Ku Klux Klan, a carpenter in Louisiana, who took up the cause of fanatical racism during the years after the Civil War. Ball, a descendant of this Klansman from the other side of his family, um, paints a portrait of his family's anti-Black militant that is part history, part memoir, rich and personal detail. Edward, welcome back. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Mayor Riley. It's good to be with you. Thank you for this invitation to to talk once again to the wide circle of your admirers and to join with Charlestonians in looking at the past and the way that it has influence on the present. You know, I, uh, of, of course, I'm not in Charleston. I'm in, in Connecticut where I live. I'm not in the Holy City but my heart is with you and I wish I could be with you. And when the, uh, when the epidemic finally lifts, I'll uh, make my reservations immediately to, uh, to come spend some time once again. I want to talk today about the Q Klux. The Ku Klux, a phrase that my grandparents' generation used in Louisiana to refer to the group, the militias. The Ku Klux, which are words that show a familiarity that only people who knew actual marauders in the white supremacist movement could use. Members of the Ku Klux Klan from 150 years ago when they first came together, did not see themselves as founders of movement. They would not have thought that their great-great-grandchildren would be talking about them. And yet, not only are we talking about the Ku Klux, the angry and ignorant and vicious gangs of Reconstruction, men who disguised themselves and hurt and sometimes killed people, not only are we talking about them, we are circulating ideas today that recall those of the Ku Klux, and we are perpetrating acts that resemble those carried out by the first clans. I hope you can see some pictures on the screen. Let me take you to El Paso, Texas in August 2019, where a marauder, a white terrorist, killed 22 people, ruining the lives of hundreds. 
And this marauder writes a manifesto that talks about white supremacy as his guiding idea. I'll take you to Charlottesville, Virginia, August 2017, when white supremacists took over a city, beat up a lot of people, and killed one person. These people used language that Klansmen once coined and symbols that announced white racial identity. The number 14 on the shield is a fairly new symbol or sign. It refers to a creed that is housed in a sentence, the 14-word manifesto written by David Lane, founder of a supremacist cell in the 1980s called The Order. The 14-word sentence, we must secure the existence of our people and a future for white children. We're all familiar with the events of June 2015 at Emanuel AME on Calhoun Street. The 11 people there have their books open at the prayer meeting to the parable of the sower. As ye sow, so shall ye reap. And the killer in that massacre also wrote a manifesto calling for a separate white nation. Let's go to January 6, 2021, in the U.S. Capitol, where a marauding mob, a large gang, carried white supremacist symbols during the storming of the Capitol. Now, the assault on the Capitol was not a Klan operation, but it drew energies from the barely submerged river of white supremacist thought an action that originates with the Ku Klux Klan. We are in a moment or a phase which has lasted several years that is punctuated by violent white supremacy. Since since 2015, some 250 people have died from white supremacist violence that announces itself as racial vengeance. And that does not include the police killings of unarmed African-Americans, the status of those killings in a discussion of racial identity can be argued. Recent years seem to me like a return, like a remembrance of things past. They seem familiar despite the grotesque uniqueness of these many acts. Why are these things familiar? Today, I want to tell a story about where it all began. When I was a boy, I lived for a lot of years in Louisiana, in New Orleans. That's the home of my mother's family. My mother's people have lived in New Orleans for about 200 years. My father's family are all from Charleston, and they have been there for about 300 years. I lived with my family in Charleston for a different part of my childhood. In New Orleans, my mother's family have been and remain to this day plain people, clerks, 
tradesmen, school teachers, salesmen, carpenters, nurses. Nobody at all with a higher education for 150 years until the 1970s. So when my family arrived in New Orleans, as I was a child, I was about 10, we moved in with my grandmother into her bungalow, which was raised up against the floods that plague New Orleans. It's near Tulane University, if you know the city, in the Carrollton district. And living with my grandmother also was a woman named Maud, my grandmother's sister, Maud LaCorn. It was with Aunt Maud, as we called her, that I first learned about our Klansmen. In the South, in many families, whether white or black, <clears throat> or mixed race, there is often a family historian. Aunt Maud was that person among my mother's people. She was about 75 when I first paid attention. She was a school teacher. She was unmarried, <clears throat> never married. She wore horn-rimmed glasses, and she had a closet of gingham dresses, knee-length <clears throat> with long sleeves. Come here, boy. Let me tell you about our people. Our people, they came from Brittany on the west coast of France. The first man was called Yves Lacorn, the first immigrant, and he was a sailor in Napoleon's Navy. And as you will learn in school, Napoleon was involved in war. <clears throat> from one end of the earth to the other. And Eve was one of his junior officers. And so the Emperor Napoleon sent a flotilla of ships to the Caribbean because there was an uprising in Saint-Domingue. That's the place they now call Haiti. And when the ship arrived, Eve got off. He never got back on and he put down his roots here. He found himself a bride who's about 19, whose name was Marguerite Zorang. Marguerite Zorang, this is Eve Lacorn's grave and his signature. Shortly after he arrived in New Orleans in 1820. After this man married Marguerite Zorang, he married himself into a, a fine Creole family who had this plantation on the Mississippi River. But he married one of the daughters who was from a branch that was less wealthy than the other branch and her branch of the family was in decline. So Eve and Marguerite, they moved into a little Creole cottage on Rue Dauphine in the French Quarter and they had five children and my Aunt Maud continued the story. They had five children, and among them was my grandfather, Constant Le Corn. Constant Constant. Constant Le Corn. He was a redeemer. The redemption, as she said, that was after the Civil War when the colored people had taken over the state and they were starting businesses. They were acting as though everything was theirs and they were voting the redemption was after that time they call Reconstruction, that awful time. Reconstruction was not when the South tried to build itself up again after the war between the states. No, Reconstruction was when they put colored people in the seat of power. The redemption were the people who resisted that. So my grandfather, Constant, 
He was a redeemer. He wanted to restore white supremacy. He got tied up in that white league. The white league. The only difference between the white league and the Q Klux is that the Q Klux were secretive and the white league were not. And thank God for the white league because they put the Negra out of the seat of power. So it was from Aunt Maud, the family historian, that I first learned about our Klansmen. 30 years later, Maud having died, my parents having died, I'm cleaning out the family house and I find a batch of files labeled Le Corn. I begin reading and I make a decision to tell the story of our Klansmen. I go back and forth from my home in Connecticut to New Orleans to look in the archives and I hire a researcher to help excavate the documentary record and a story takes shape. Constant Le Corn was born in 1832 to a French family in New Orleans. He's the second of three sons. His parents give his older brother the education and Constant goes into a trade. He grows up a small, thin man, nervous and alert with sharp features, skinny nose and beautiful hands, an underbite and a furrowed brow. Constant's parents were of the white class who start high and then lose their economic advantage. In New Orleans, his parents were among the one quarter of whites who enslaved people. However, they enslaved five people, not 55. One of them was a man named Ovid. Ovid, who Constant inherited just before the Civil War began and then sold because he wanted to build a house and used the money from the sale of Ovid to build a house. <clears throat> Constant's father dies at age 54 when he is eight and his mother cannot make the family work. She has five minor children without the five enslaved people that they own. She hires them out. She rents them to whites more prosperous than she is, and that becomes the family income. At age 24, in 1856, Constant marries a woman named Gabrielle Duchemin, age 19, an orphan of French descent from the Caribbean island of Martinique. He becomes in steamboats on the Mississippi. As the Civil War approaches in 1860, Constant and his wife Gabrielle live in a rented house with their two children. His parents are dead. His mother, when she died, gave him two of her enslaved people, Ovid and Dinah. He sells Ovid, holds on to Dinah, and then the war begins. Constant goes to fight with the Confederacy, as do 50,000 other white men in Louisiana. He and his wife invest in the fight, buying Confederate bonds, and they lose all their money. When he comes home after three years, he's sick, exhausted, and bitter. 
and he arrives in a city, as my Aunt Maud called it, full of carpetbaggers and with the Negroes twice as numerous. Now with three children, the carpenter Lacorn finds his livelihood wrecked and their enslaved woman Dinah is free and gone. Louisiana is occupied by the U.S. Army and New Orleans is crowded with black freed people who have left the sugar and cotton plantations north of the city. About 350,000 African Americans in Louisiana are emancipated. Many thousand moved to New Orleans and Constant the carpenter now competes with black craftsmen to make a living and he does badly. Lacorn, this is my great great grandfather and I will call him by his surname now. Lacorn felt himself a victim. He saw the new world as anathema and he descended into resentment. The government, the occupation government was pro-Negro and the coloreds actually held office, which seemed to him to be a genuine perversion. Reconstruction, as we call it, was the name of the first attempt to remake the United States as a racially mixed democracy. To some, not least to four million ex-slaves, it meant power sharing with whites, perhaps wealth sharing, and somewhere in the distance, shared humanity. These fantastical ideas, called radical reconstruction by their millions of white opponents, met with mass obstruction and violent defiance. That's one of Constant's houses. The Ku Klux Klan arose in Tennessee, probably in 1866, soon after the end of the Civil War, and it was a resistance movement. It was an armed militia that wanted to return to a world run by whites, dominated by whites, with only whites and economic and political authority. The name Ku Klux derives from the Greek kuklos, or circle, and gangs, as everyone knows, often dressed in costumes and masks. Klansmen made a cult of disguise, wearing hoods to avoid identification by the army occupiers. Klansmen also knew their victims personally and preferred to torment them anonymously. In Louisiana, the Klan used other names. The Knights of the White Camellia was one, the White League another, the Innocents a third. In Mississippi, there was the White Line. In North Carolina, the Red Shirts. The Ku Klux Klan is as wide as the South for about eight years, and alongside it, there were all of those parallel militias that I've just named. Now, an early disguise of the white brigades was the ranks of volunteer fire companies. Volunteer firemen joined in great numbers, in great numbers, Confederate veterans joined volunteer fire companies, which became overstaffed and armed and were like a kind of um, seedbed for the white supremacist movement. Constant Lacorn's fire company was called Home Hook and Ladder, 
which was made up of his former Company C of the, of the 14th Regiment, Louisiana uh, Infantry. Constant took the extreme step and joined this armed resistance. He became a guerrilla fighter who wanted to return the South to white rule, and he became a foot soldier in that campaign. The first major explosion in New Orleans occurred in July 1866, and circumstantial evidence is preponderant that Constant Lacorn was there. At the Mechanics Institute, a meeting hall for tradesmen during a convention to agitate for the black vote, Home Hook and Ladder was among the fire companies on the scene sent by the mayor, the white mayor, to break up this political meeting. The shooting started, an assault on the Klan, an assault of the Klan, the incipient Klan, consisting of fire companies and ranks of uh, unnamed gangs, left 200 black people dead, according to one newspaper editor who was witness to the events. And it was a massacre about voting rights. It's relevant to observe that much of the fight during the election of 2020 was about voting, who gets to vote, whose votes are counted, especially about when it is black people who are voting. During the next eight years, evidence shows LeCorn and perhaps 5,000 others in the state, all of them known as Q Klux in the newspapers, raided, marched, and beat people. LeCorn seems to have joined a group called the Knights of the White Camellia, led by a family friend named Alcibiade de Blanc. The Knights of the White Camellia were costumed and hooded. They harassed people. They conducted night raids. They whipped people. They carried out individual killings. In the nighttime attack, LeCorn and an armed gang of 20 surrounded a police depot in Louise, in New Orleans, up see building. A second group stormed the city's main armory, but failed to overcome its U.S. Army defenders. LeCorn's gang held its position, and the standoff ensued for days, with the military camped nearby. If the Klan could bring down the Louisiana government, even for a week, then the U.S. Army, which shored up the new and precarious civil rights laws, could be forced to withdraw from the state and white rule might be taken back. The army stormed the building and one man was killed. LeCorn and the others were charged with treason and with violating the Ku Klux Klan Act. In Washington, Congress had hoped the 1871 Ku Klux Klan Act would stamp out the white gangs. The Klan penalty was five years. The treason penalty was hanging. Constant Lecorn was not the only one in the family who fought for white rule. His cousins, his nephew, his brother-in-law joined him in the coup attempt. In addition, several of his French cousins played greater or lesser roles in the militia with the medieval name, the Knights of the White Camellia. In the treason case, the gallows were being argued when a sympathetic white judge dismissed all accounts, all counts, freeing Lecorn and his co-conspirators. He returned to the street 
and to the fight. <clears throat> now, if you believe that to have a clansman among your relatives is a strange or deviant thing, think of this. In 1925, the Kukox clan could claim five million members, white and Christian. Now, it's likely for publicity reasons that this number was exaggerated. Let's assume that actual clan membership stood near four million. The descendants of four million clansmen living in 1925, if you count forward 100 years to their grandchildren and great-grandchildren in the year 2025, add up to about 135 million living white Americans. 135 million form 50% of the white population of the United States. Seen another way, that means that one of two whites have a family link to the Ku Klux. Every other white person, if he or she knew the names of ancestors and wished to research their lives, could produce a clan family memoir. Now, why retrieve from obscurity this bitter and bloody story about Constant Lecorne, a foot soldier in the first white militias? I have a personal motive, and that is that it bothers me. It feels like finding a corpse in a bedroom. I'm disgusted and ashamed. I had an inkling that my great-great-grandfather was a violent supremacist, but I did not see until research just what this family member had gotten up to. He was not a thoughtful man. He could write an invoice for his carpentry work, but that's about it. And he did not develop the idea of white entitlement that still circulates. But God knows he put poison in that idea and he damaged the lives of hundreds. Still, for public reasons and not personal reasons, why revive this filthy story and bring it back? One reason is to try to harness the tale of Lacorn and to repurpose it in some hope of shining a light on steps forward. It's 50 years now after the end of the civil rights movement and the white and black divide nationally is caustic and fresh. And that is because the US possesses a tragic history, some of which white Americans tend to be unaware of. In fact, much of this tragic history lies in the repressed parts of our collective memory. Many people find it uncomfortable to speak about whiteness. We dislike, as whites, being labeled members of a race. We dislike acknowledging that race's power. And that is because, in part, the Ku Klux and people like Lacorn succeeded in the redemption. They made whiteness a norm part of the atmosphere. Now, if you think that I'm flattening all difference, making white people the same as Klansmen, I do not want to do that. However, I do have the idea that there is white supremacy, violent white supremacy, and all the way across the spectrum, 
there is something kinder and gentler. Father knows best whiteness. It is atmospheric and it is permeating the social common. I think as soon as I stop talking, which will be in one minute, someone is going to ask, what can I do? What can be done about white supremacy? And one answer I think is uncomfortable, and that is to see it not as an alien phenomenon, but as something familiar, perhaps in my case, something familial, familial. I wrote this book, Life of a Klansman, in order to see whiteness as something familial and for other reasons. I do not think that we're in the midst of a return to the barbarism of race wars. In fact, I think we have reason to be optimistic. Last summer, the mass marches showed the country something new. After the killing of George Floyd, some 20 million people demonstrated in the street for weeks, sometimes for months. Among the marchers were perhaps one third of them white people. This was without precedent. During the civil rights campaigns of the high years of, 18, of 1966, 67, 8, when they involved the participation of whites, it was at a ratio of one in 10. Last summer, the whites who marched are whites who may be seeing their own racial identity in a new way. And that is reason for optimism. So I do have reason to hope. And as my Aunt Maud told me about the redemption, my grandfather, Constant Lacan, he was a redeemer. The redemption was a return to order. We have had, since mid-January, as it may turn out, a kind of redemption. The end of the previous administration was a pivot point. It is possibly a redemptive turn, a redemption that it's beginning to gather strength. And I hope that the white militias and their silent supporters, their many fellow travelers, are going to be turned back and the geyser pushed back underground beneath the surface. Thank you all very much for taking this walk with me. Thank you very much, Mayor Riley, for inviting me to talk. And that story I just told is in this book, which is about, I don't know, six months old now, something like that. Um, and it's, it's better told than the way I just told it in that book. So uh, buy this book, buy this book. If, if uh, Edward didn't make, make that clear, um, absolutely, Life of a Klansman. Um, Edward, thank you so much. Um, you generously agreed to uh, answer questions. And at this sure. point, um, I'd like to invite uh, any of our guests to put questions into the chat, and I'll do my best to relay those to uh, Edward. Maybe while we're, we're we're waiting here, Edward, can you 
talk a little bit about the relationship between slaves and the family and this current project? And, you know, on, on any level, in terms of the research or in terms of what the those two major projects have meant to you personally? Yeah, sure. Um, well, my book, Slaves in the Family, was published 22, three years ago and uh, tells the story of um, the Ball family of Charleston and their 25 rice plantations, as well as the stories of 10 African-American families whose ancestors the Ball family had once enslaved on their rice plantations north of Charleston. And when I uh, wrote that book, I, I s practically swam in a river of um, source material, some 10,000 pages of records that survived from this slave dynasty, if you will allow me to use that expression, um, allowing me to chronicle the lives of hundreds of people who lived uh, anonymously uh, without the benefit of literacy, without the benefit of inscribing their own histories. I started to research this book, Life of a Klansman, which tells the story of one man in my mother's family in New Orleans. My mother's family are all in Louisiana. <clears throat> and uh, like 99% of, of society, his family uh, left very few um, paper records that chronicled their experiences. Uh, there was no archive. And I only had a few scraps of paper that he had written a signature on. Uh, this man, Constant de Corn. So I had to decide, I wanted to write his story and I actually began write, writing it as a novel um, because I, I thought faced with uh, what, what you might call the silence of the archive, I, I thought that I would, um, have to do it as have to write it as fiction, and I wrote about a hundred pages, and um, not only were they not very good, a hundred pages, but at a certain point I realized that the story had more grip as nonfiction as history because people crave the real. And it would, I decided that I would have to try to write it as nonfiction in order to do justice to the extraordinary things that were going, what I was beginning to uncover. <clears throat> so I switched to writing a piece of history. And this is, and this is a biography, if you like. This is the way it's um, sold, sold as a biography. To do it was to spend hundreds of hours in the public records of the state of Louisiana in an archive called the Historic New Orleans Collection, in an archive called the Sacramental Records of the Catholic Church Diocese of New Orleans, in an archive uh, 
collected and held by the New Orleans Public Library, in court records, in uh, criminal records, in uh, newspaper archives that had retained some of the very fragile uh, papers published chronicling the events of the Klan. And it took five years of research with the help of hired research assistants to put together uh, small pieces of narrative content, like bits of a mosaic, like broken tiles that you can craft into a, a picture, hundreds of bits of narrative information that I would assemble gradually and painstakingly into um, into narrative content. So it was a totally different uh, research experience. And, uh, and the result is a, a different kind of story. It's, it's still history, but it's, it, it has um, different uh, roots to it. Uh, a couple friends, uh, Edward Margaret Seidler and Howard Chapman were just curious about your research assistance and wanted to know how you went about finding uh, good good research assistants. Well, I went to a friend of mine at Tulane University in New Orleans, who teaches in the history department. And I said, do you have any graduate students who would like to earn a little money and spend a few hundred hours in, um, in a library? And... Fortunately, one exceptional, exceptional researcher, his name is John Bardis, who was a 25-year-old New Orleanian, um, signed on to the task. And he uh, did, I'm, I'm living in Connecticut, I'm coming back and forth from Connecticut to New Orleans every month or so. But he oh, was the without without this man's work without his work I couldn't have written this book and he now teaches at LSU he's his first job as a historian he's been hired by Louisiana State University and so I um, I have much gratitude for his his work in excavating the the, uh, the remote parts of uh, of this uh, story. I, I think these are a couple of related questions here is um, uh, Sherry Kay asks, uh, does Mr. Ball believe racism and violent whiteness can be rooted out and healed rather than just pushed back into the geyser? And I, I think somewhat overlapping is our good friend Ann Kilpatrick's question about what we might do to address polarization and extreme racism that was reflected in the January 6th events? Yeah. Gosh, those are hard questions, man. <laughs> you got me. And you got me on that metaphor, the, the geyser, the underground river metaphor with the geyser. It's a nice image, but it does sort of trap us into uh, seeing white supremacy as a state of nature which it may not be. It may be uh, an acquired ideology. In fact, it, white supremacy had to be invented 
And I have this pet theory that white supremacy as uh, a kind of coherent system of entitlement was invented after the Civil War when whiteness, that white racial identity was under threat uh, for the first time and Reconstruction in a kind of reaction generated uh, this set of uh, ideas, that's this ideology of white superiority that uh, previously had not been necessary for uh, ruling families to articulate. And it is this idea of, of white uh, entitlement and of overlordship that becomes this kind of caustic uh, caustic poison that circulates in the in the in public life um, in the United States for generation after generation, and it does. I believe it it does surface and then disappear, and then surface and then disappear when uh, when Jim Crow um, segregation is established. It comes to a crescendo, <clears throat> and the eugenics movement of the uh, teens and twenties um, is another fulsome surge of it. Um, yeah, I, I, I think that um, we are in the, the first and and um, interesting stages of a self-awareness among white people, growing numbers of white people, of our white racial identity, and a, a state of awareness that m- many whites have previously been unwilling to um, engage in. Um, I, I really think that, uh, optimistically, uh, there is a new uh, understanding that racial identity is not something that is possessed only by people of color, but it is possessed also by by white people. And that part of that identity um, exists in the notion unconscious, principally unconscious, but with conscious, with um, actual social effects of um, the the authority to rule the, the white folks as as the um, how can we say the the natural place of of beauty and 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 authority and the uh, a, a number of uh, things that we think about ourselves that have been placed there. Uh, ideas that have been placed there by history, they can be unlearned. They can be unlearned. And I think that we're in an early stage of, of that unlearning. And um, and uh, I, I have hope that it's going to continue. I'm going to try to get in uh, one, one more student, uh, question. This is from our good student, uh, Taylor Sturba, who you've now known uh, since the beginning of the semester. 
And uh, Taylor was uh, wondering if you might speak to some of the particular challenges of this project. Um, yeah. Well, um, the challenges of this project part of partly just come from the research challenges. The uh, the fact of the absent archive, as I have called it, <clears throat> I think it's the the normal experience of families and the family that I'm writing about in this book, my mother's uh, family 100 years, 100 and 150 years ago, a working class family, what they are called, were called in the French-speaking New Orleans of the time, petit blanc, petit blanc, meaning little whites. Uh, there, there was for many years an understanding that the white population was made up of the grand blanc, the great whites, the the uh, the landowning whites, the the wealthy class, and the petit blanc, the little whites. <clears throat> the majority experience of petit blanc is is the uh, the absent archive. Um, so there was the research challenge there. There was another research challenge. Um, you asked me earlier, uh, Carrie, whether I could talk about the relationship between this book, Life of a Klansman, and Slaves in the Family 20-odd years ago. And one thing that this book, Life of a Klansman, does that has an echo, it echoes the uh, template of Slaves in the Family. In this book, I, I find <clears throat> in Louisiana and in a couple of the northern states, African-Americans living today whose ancestors were victimized by the marauders of the Ku Klux that my great-great-grandfather uh, joined. Um, and I, with their participation and, <laughs> and consent, I tell their family stories as well. In other words, what happened to that that family under these and in this night ride, <laughs> this massacre. What happened to them after and where they are now? And and so that's that was another research problem. Finding and then actually gaining the trust of several families uh, who would allow me to come visit them as a representative someone who represents the one of the family members who who violated and their and abused them their people their ancestors some decades some generations ago that was hard that was hard so <clears throat> those are two two answers to your question well um i'm Thank you all for your questions that you've been putting into the chat. There have also been a number of uh, uh, very uh, favorable comments for you, Edward, and uh, hopefully you'll you'll get a chance. We'll we'll get those to you so you can uh, read read some mail from your 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 many fans. 
Um, I, I, no, I would like I would like you to send me the ones that they're throwing tomatoes. <laughs> we'll, we'll send would it you, all on. Would you please send those? And, because you know, I know it. Sometimes you know these stories kind of get under people's skin, and um, and that's okay. Thank you again, Edward. Uh, Mayor, can you close us out? Sure, Carrie, and um, I, I command the book and uh, and our local book sellers and those who are. Uh, are looking at us and talking with us from around the, the state and the country. Uh, it, it's a wonderful book. It was a, a, a book of a novel impression for me, uh, as was substantially slaves in the family. And I thank and congratulate Edward for his, uh, his, his scholarship and his willing to tackle subjects that are uh, important to our country being being examined and, and unearthed. And um, I'm, I'm uh, you won't find a more optimistic person than me. And I, I, I'm optimistic about the future and optimistic about the younger generation and the fact that our country has, 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 has become more, more diverse and more comfortable with and celebrating its diversity, but um, but but we have to be on on the alert, and we have to be aware of of bad things that can happen when bad people with uh, bad ideas uh, are in charge or leading leading a charge. So, Edward, you you're really amazing. You've uh, you've given in these two books a great great gifts to our country. And, and certainly uh, here is the uh, looking over where the, the museum is, I can't see it, but it's under construction. Um, it would not be under construction. It wouldn't have been an idea, but for Edward Ball's scholarship and slaves in the family. And it will open in June or July of 2022. And Edward will have a, a very, uh, much a front row seat there and look forward to you, all of you coming and those who would like to continue to contribute to the International African American Museum. We welcome that as well. The, the, these two these two stories are linked and, um, and the linkage is important. Uh, we want to make this a better country, a more perfect union. And the way we do that is by uh, celebrating uh, diversity and, uh, and coming together. So Edward, thank you. Uh, and you are really a treasure, uh, value, and proud of your friendship and, and certainly uh, applaud you for your wonderful scholarship. Well, blessings on you, Mayor mm -hmm. Blessings on you and your work. Thank you. I'm grateful to be with you and, and for your, uh, I feel like we're arm in arm. Locking, locking arm in arm. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Lectures and History podcast. Be sure to check out our Afterwards podcast. This week, our guest is nationally syndicated columnist George Will. He talks about the, quote, unruly torrent years of 2008 through 2020. Find it and follow wherever you get your podcasts. And check out C-SPAN's new app called C-SPAN Now. 
Watch live or on-demand C-SPAN's complete coverage of the U.S. House and Senate, congressional hearings, White House events, the courts, campaigns, and more from the world of politics. Find it in the Apple App Store or on Google Play.